0: Greetings citizen. Welcome to the show and thank you for listening. For more of the art of war gaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email Art of Wargaming Podcast at Gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're to the Art of Wargaming on the
1: Ear Network.
0: Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and today we're going to be speaking about the follow-through, which is to say, what we do with a victory after we've achieved it. Before we get into that, though, you probably noticed that this episode was late as well. (laughs) When we got back, um, of course, the, the episode before this was delayed, but we were planning on cranking it out, and then making sure that this one was ready to go right on time, but we ran into another snack, because returning from the last vacation, seemed to have picked up a little friend, a little tag along, somebody who decided to come along for the ride, and it had been really popular, you know, was, this individual has been very popular, an international sensation, if you will, and the name is COVID finally got me and y'all it's awful i mean i'm fully vaccinated which you know this show i don't typically get uh, political or anything like that but get vaccinated please just do it but i'm fully vaccinated and it still sucked right and i knew it was going to happen eventually again this this particular virus has become endemic at this point you know most flus descend from the spanish flu which was a killer but now you know these ones are far more mild still killers but not nearly to the degree the spanish flu was you know chicken pox was uh, you know kind of like an anthrax or a, a small pox at one point but then it became endemic and now it's just an irritating thing that we all typically get when we're like five years old so i knew i was going to get it eventually but it is awful and any of you who have had it will probably agree with me um, and those of you who have not had it i ooh yeah hmm. you're in for a treat I mean I mean obviously I'm still here it wasn't I didn't die from it or anything but like one of the worst things about it was like my throat was really swollen so swallowing at all was terrible oh it was terrible and I'm a water drinker y'all especially when I'm sick so that was just ugh, it was rough so basically spent two minutes talking about that just to say sorry that this one is also late but i feel like it was for a good reason because it was myself and of course uh the the immediate production team my editor and wife who got it as well and so neither of you wouldn't have wanted this episode let me just put that out there if i had recorded it <laughs> the week that i had the sickness which was the one that we were supposed to be getting the other one finished up and getting this one that you're listening to produced um yeah i would not have sounded good it would have been a whole lot of <clears throat> oh and um yeah, nobody, nobody wants that. So, uh, the vacation continued, I guess, in a way, but we are back now. So, um, barring any other horrific plagues that decide to descend upon us and I'm not planning on going anywhere else we're we're done traveling for a second. Thank God. But uh, yeah, this should be, this should be good. So if you haven't gotten it yet, you probably will. It's not that bad. I know everybody talks it up, but like, obviously I'm still here. I didn't have to be hospitalized. It was just incredibly uncomfortable. But, you know, it also gives you a moment of gratitude in a lot of ways, because I'm from America and I'm, uh, I'm middle-class, solidly middle-class at this point for, you know, probably TMI. But the, the point of the matter is I've got, you know, clean clothes that I can change into. I have air conditioning. I have uh, family and friends who are willing to check in on me and bring stuff that I may not have needed. I had access to fresh water, clean, fresh water. There were a lot of things going for me that made this a lot more tolerable. I wasn't dealing with this in a place that was not as well equipped. You know, there's, there's millions of people who are having to deal with this and they don't have what I did in order to, to cope with it. And so I'm saddened, because it sucks and I and I wish that everybody could have had the easy convalescence that I did but I'm all I also you know I feel very very grateful for what I have and so I going forward I want to make sure to try to ch- share that and I want to try to make sure that I uh check my privilege as it were but we saw again the the army stopped marching right we we came to a grinding halt because of this sickness and it affected our military readiness. <laughs> How's that for a stretch? <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, I wasn't able to get up and, and do my work, take notes and follow through on the notes or, or come out here and speak. Good Lord. I mean, COVID brain is a thing. Oh my gosh. Like sitting down and looking at the pages of the book being like, I know that that's English. I'm pretty sure that's an English translation, but... <laughs> I'll be damned if I know what it says. Whew, it was a doozy. But you know, my faculties came back. My taste came back. Oh, that was weird. That was weird. So, so yeah, I I keep ranting about this, but it's because it was it was such a very very uh, eventful week. So let, let's let's move beyond that. We've already discussed it to death. Yeah, COVID bad. Moving on. I'm gonna be getting into the word bearers, y'all. Chaos Space Marine style. Partially because I think the rules look interesting and that I can do something with it. I don't know if we're going to be talking about like an tier army that is going to beat all. But for fun, absolutely. And, and maybe to do a little bit with uh, local tournaments, sure. Sure, why not? And part of the reason I'm doing this is because the word bearers are fascinating to me in the lore. I absolutely love them. And a good part of that is because they are the most influential group by far in terms of like the setting for 30k and 40k because yeah i know 30k or whatever it's a horus heresy oh you know horus such a big deal and of course everybody talks about magnus either he did something wrong or didn't do something wrong but he's very much a point of contention but the word bearers are the ones who fell first right they were the ones who found the dark gods basically and used it to spread to horus so horus wasn't the first one to fall he was the war master who was able to do something with it he was a like you know took control of the the traitor legions and did something and so that's why it's called the horus heresy but the word bearers kicked it off without them without them having their whole obsession with religion the you know the humiliating defeat and destruction of monarchia You know, they wouldn't have gone searching for it and therefore probably we wouldn't have seen the same corruption of the space marines and and the destruction of the Imperium as it was to be. Now for 40k, we're not just talking about the effects of the Horus Heresy itself, but Lorgar penned the holy book for the Imperial cult. The very book that is like the Bible, you know, the Quran for, for the Imperial cult, that was written by Lorgar, primarch of the of the word bearers and so that that book shapes is, is entirely shaped the the modern imperium so whether it was in the horus heresy and their corruption of not just their own group but the the surrounding groups the lodges right that they used to spread these ideas and then the book being such an influential hit even 10,000 years later yeah word bearers are pretty darn influential y'all I'm looking forward to, to playing them a little bit because I've loved the books. Oh my gosh, I love them in the books. Um, so yeah, word bearers, they're going to be a thing. So, so wait for me to <laughs> rant about that in the future. But I think I've, I've yammered on long enough about the word bearers and COVID and, and all that sort of thing. So you know, let's get right into it and talk about the follow through. properly follow through with our victory we need to understand first what the uses of battle are and how they're going to help us achieve our victory and what kind of follow through we're going to need to to make sure that that victory is crystallized because again as we had talked about before there's that crisis even in the decisive moment when things could just go all horribly wrong and so knowing what, what the use is here is good and so when we're When we're talking about the use of battle, or like battle as we did last time, we need to acknowledge five fundamental truths. I would say six. I'm going to add one, as my pick-a-fight-with-a-dead-guy for this particular episode is adding on this this sixth consideration. But as Clausewitz puts it, we have five of them. So let's talk about those real quick. Number one, destruction of the military force, of our enemy's military force, is the leading principle. And all of our actions must positively push toward that idea. Destroying our opponent's force. That is our leading principle. And as we talked about last episode, when we were talking about secondary and minor objectives, maintaining our eye on the prize is important here. Because it will keep us from straying off of the path. And we know, we know that this is our driving force for being here, whether we're on the field and we're looking across at our opposing fighters or at the table looking across at our opponent, our opponent's models. We know that the only way, the only way that we have, the only thing that we have to to do in this moment is destroy our opponent's military power, whatever their um, capability is in that particular regard. The second truth that we must acknowledge is that the destruction of the enemy force is affected by the means of battle. And not affected, effected. So we have to make that (laughs) destruction happen ourselves. Even if it is a leading principle, we can't just be like, boom, done, and have it just be over with. No, that we have our means that we have to use. And so this destruction of the force is affected by our means of battle. Do we have a lot of long range? That we need to make sure that we're using properly? Are we we polearm users? Up in your face melee units? Long range artillery? Like what are we looking at here? What are the means that we have to destroy our opponent? Because whatever those are, it's obviously what we're going to be using. If I don't have any artillery, I will not be using artillery. Yeah. I think that one's kind of self-explanatory in a lot of ways. Number three. Only great and general battles can produce great results. And luckily for us, that's what we get. Whether we're talking about physical or mental wargaming, what we have is a great and general battle. On a on a 40k board, we have a great and general battle. When we're dealing with stuff on the Belegarth field, these are the things that we're looking at. Because as we talked about last episode, everybody's consenting to be there. Everybody's there with the intent of... Uh, of violence with the intent of fighting whether it be with plastic models or or swords or whatever the case may be so it is already a great and general battle so this is where we can get those those great results and this leads us to number four the results of this great and general battle will be greatest when the combats unite themselves into that great battle so this, this seems kind of confusing at first when we're talking about these individual combats uniting themselves. Well, if we think about what we've talked about before, the campaigns leading up to this, the fights leading up to this, these combats in of themselves begin to make a shape of what like the overall strategy, the overall campaign has looked at. And so the truth that we're dealing with here is that this, this great and general battle is shaped by those combats that lead led up to it, or they're happening or happening around it, and if we think about it within a literal terms, when we're dealing with fighting on the field, for instance, it often is a matter of individual fights wherever you are. It's myself against my opponent. They have people in their line. I have people in my line. But for the most part, it's a struggle between individuals, between smaller groups. You know, if we're dealing with a, a field, a hundreds hundred people large. It's going to be really hard for somebody on the left side to truly know and to truly be able to you know factor into their own planning what's happening on the right side unless they have the ability to sit there and observe it but if these if these little combats are uniting themselves if we have an overall idea an overall plan that we're working towards beyond just victory good loss bad well then through these Smaller combats, we can unite them into this great battle. We can unite them into this great victory. And so recognizing every small combat, every small skirmish as being important and linked to the overall victory, that's important. And that's the truth that we're dealing with for number four. Number five is only in this great battle should the general themselves place more confidence in themselves than in their subordinates. The model of war, that was being used at the time Clausewitz was writing. Again, the division system was very common, where you had smaller self-contained groups that had their cav, they had their infantry, they had their artillery, and they were each moving independently of one another. And then when one found uh, a piece of the enemy or the enemy, they would fix them in place and the other ones would come to join. And so in this, the general often places confidence, trust, In those other groups, in their colonels or in their um, brigadiers, in order to bring about the outcome that is most favorable. Because you can't be everywhere at once. A a general who tries to micromanage every aspect of every battle is going to burn out fast. Now, obviously, within 40k, this one is just, we already have our great battle taking place. And so, obviously, we we don't let our units lead themselves. And they couldn't, because they're plastic. But I know I've seen it on the overall battle as well. When you have these, when you have just normal pickup battles being done, just like normal little, you know, this side is this side, that side is that side. Nobody's really looking for realm or unit affiliations. It's just for fun. It doesn't really matter. Like, I don't need to be on there barking orders. I will. I mean, I still will if I need to, but it's not going to be the same kind of pressure as it is if it's for a unit battle as in you get together with your unit you're fighting against other units it's one of the bigger deal battles throughout the course of the day and now in this particular case you'll see leaders come out and with the dark angels it's hard for me to judge that because we're all supposed to be leaders we don't really have a ranking structure but i remember that when i was in the Urukai, and Forkbeard was in charge of it throughout most of the day. He he might show up on the field, might fight a little bit, but for a good portion of it, he was tending to things, you know, you know, various issues that come with being a leader back at camp. Now, during the unit battles, Forkbeard would come out, and he would take direct control over the unit. And so, in this way, even if there were like smaller groups of of Urakai who ended up together on the same team. Forkbeard didn't necessarily feel the need to micromanage each of those combats, to micromanage every single fight that occurred. And so he was was actually doing this to the T, making sure that in only that one circumstance did he place more confidence in himself and his abilities than he did in his subordinates. So this is something to remember. Again, we we need to have people in place that we trust, but nobody's going to, you know, if you want it done right... Right? You want to do right, done right, you do it yourself. But again, doing this every single time is going to burn out a general real fast. So that's part of the reason why this is here. And I think Clausewitz left one out. Because one of the things that he talked about in those first several chapters that really stuck in my mind was the idea that all war is escalation. And especially when we're dealing with the theme of this particular chapter that we're looking at, this is very important. I, th- I thought this was a very important point to acknowledge that it will escalate. That if I build a 30-foot wall, they're going to build a 30 for, 32-foot ladder. If I make a bodkin arrow, they're going to come up with um, like plating or scaled armor or something that that fights against that and makes it no longer effective. This escalation has to happen. Because people want to win. And so if you're putting forth effort, I want to put forth just a little bit more. And then you want to put forth a little bit more. And then a little bit more. And then suddenly it it kind of builds upon itself. And so these great and general battles are not just of themselves one-offs. Even they will experience some level of this escalation. Because the more that war is war in earnest, the more venting of hostility and animosity. And this is a direct quote from the section. The more that war is war in earnest, the more venting of hostility and animosity. So war in earnest is done on purpose. And we had talked before, several episodes ago, about what happens if you've actually got hatred within the state. What happens if you actually possess like some sort of national hatred? Think about the French and the HRE, the Holy Roman Empire. The French hated them, hated them to such an extent that Marie Antoinette marrying Louis was an affront to that sort of national feeling, right? And, And this contributed to their fights. I mean, they were particularly vicious in their fighting against the Holy Roman Empire because of this animosity, because of this already innate anger and resentment that was built into their national identity. And so if the war is in earnest... That is typically because you actually have some sort of grudge, some sort of axe to grind. And this is, this is also true within fighting. I know that if I'm going against somebody who I don't particularly like, I may not want, I may not be fighting from a place of anger, right? I may not be letting anger enter my limbs and make me sloppy. I may not be letting it cloud my head and put me into a state where I'm no longer at my top functioning, but it can still be there it can still be part of the reason that my sword flies just a little bit faster and just a little bit harder. It may be the reason that I double down just a little bit more at the board because I'm actually venting hostility and animosity toward my opponent. Important not to put yourself on tilt with this. Put ourselves at a disadvantage. But a little bit of hostility goes a long way. And a lot of this deals with, again, that human weakness. We spoke about human weakness last episode. And if we are indecisive about bloodshed, if, so, like, obviously, none of us are actively trying to bleed our friends. But if we're indecisive about hitting someone, I know that, that was a, that's a huge issue for a lot of new fighters because most people have never really been in a real fight. Most people have never thrown. A shot they've never thrown a fist they've never re- they've never thrown a stick against somebody who wasn't doing some sort of like play fighting with them because I know I know the vast majority of us picked up sticks and swung them at our siblings and cousins and that sort of thing when we were growing up but often it wasn't for real you know I'd I'd throw a shot somewhat slowly and then you block it and then you throw and I block it and we kind of choreographed this cool little fight scene which is nothing like a real fight Nothing like it at all, because that brings in an element of hostility. Even between two people who like each other, we're trying to hit each other. Ultimately, we're trying to engage in consensual violence. And so if we're indecisive about this, if we don't want to throw that shot, if we're shy about throwing that shot, we will lose for that. And so we must be stoic in the face of it. We can't let ourselves be tilted one way or the other. I decided fairly early on in my career That when I entered the field, I was going to stop seeing people as my friends. I was going to stop looking at my girlfriend as my girlfriend. I was going to stop looking at my best friend as my best friend. And instead, they became allies or targets. And it did not matter. I've had romantic interests out there on the field, and I fought against them just as hard as I would against somebody else. You know, I've had best friends out there on the field, and we've actually... You know, TF and I are really quite savage with each other and I love it. Um, But, you know, even in these cases, we still put that aside. We put away that indecisiveness because you have to. You know, I've gone against people who I was like, oh, I don't want to go as hard against them because I have a crush. They did not have that same sentimentality. (laughs) It worked to their benefit, right? So, you know, this is what we're looking for. We're looking for that stoicism and in the same idea We have to make sure that we train in times of peace one of the things that clauswitz was really down about was something like the humanities right he says the more that humanity puts into us and of course he was i think he was also criticizing like uh poetry and art and music and these other things that we pursue in times of peace he say that they he says that they blunt the blade we have to keep that blade sharp And so even in times of peace, even when we're not on the field, even if we're not actively eventing, it is good to engage in readiness. And in this readiness, we can again approach war in earnest. If we have the stoicism of locking away those attachments, locking away that sentimentality and only seeing allies and targets, and then we keep our blade sharp by engaging in this readiness idea, well, we can actually do that war in earnest. And we don't have to rely on potentially being on tilt from anger. We're actually ready for it. We're there for it. And the more that we take the field in that true spirit of war, and in the true spirit of war, again, we've we talked about this in terms of like nationalism in, on a real scale, but in particular here we're talking about that stoicism, that readiness, that understanding of the truths that we had talked about before, the destruction of the military force being leader, leading principle, you know, having to do that by means of battle, looking for that great and general battle that can produce those great results. All of these things. If we go with the spirit of that, understanding these truths, having internalized them, it gives us a huge, huge advantage in combat, especially over an opponent who isn't doing those things. If we have an opponent who shirks away from violence, that's a huge hit to their ability to perform. If we have an opponent who has allowed themselves to go slack in times of peace, as it were, we're going to be given the advantage there. And even if not, if we were just more stoic than our opponent or more ready than our opponent, these things also tilt in our favor, push that equilibrium, right, if you will. And so we must take the field, in the spirit of war in the true spirit of war because we have to be ready to make decisions and that may seem you know like like a redundant statement but to make those decisions we need to be confident in making because being indecisive is lethality and so this confidence again comes from the ability to be ready we know we're ready our blade has not been blunted i know You know, much like the rest of you, I don't go off field and come home and then just have a complete morose existence that is entirely training. I like to watch TV. I like to listen to some music. I like to read books that aren't Clausewitz's on war, you know? I have a life outside of war. But that doesn't mean I don't practice. That doesn't mean I don't try to keep myself sharp. It doesn't mean that I don't engage in PT, you know, physical training, doing some Pell work, doing some shadow boxing, making sure that my forms are nice and sharp. These things keep me ready. And again, not letting myself get too soft, you know, because, because again, it can be easy to, to let your guard down, to get, let the blade get dull. But if we keep that up, we can have confidence when we're making our decision, because if we're not ready and we're not stoic. What do we have? What do we have? We should not be in charge. If we do not have those things, we should not be driving the bus. Probably not. Like I, I know people who fight. Who just do it for the fun right they're out there to swing their stick at their friends and and that sort of thing in fact i would say the good portion of bella is out there just for a good time and a good portion of 40k too like people want to win don't get me wrong but there's not a whole lot of people that are going to spend hours researching meta and playing around with lists trying to make sure that they have the most efficient and most effective list that they have this is a a step and beyond But if we want to get there, if that is the sort of style of play that we pursue, then this is important. Because when it all boils down, the effectiveness of our victory, let's skip forward now. Let's say that we've, we've done all of this. We've walked in, we did the battle, we thought about it like we would have last episode. And then we're coming in. The effectiveness of this victory depends on four things. The first one is on the tactical form adopted as an order of battle. Let me read that again. On the tactical form adopted as the order of battle, there's going to be a huge difference between what a victory looks like if we hit them straight on, as opposed to hitting them at an oblique, as opposed to hitting them on a flank or moving around behind them. Each of these things is going to change the effectiveness of our victory, which we'll see in the next next section. We're talking about utilizing our victories strategically. We're going to talk a little bit more about this particular concept the second thing that will dictate the effectiveness of our victory is the nature of the country you know is it hilly country because if it's hilly country our successes are going to be smaller because they are more spread out a great and general battle typically takes place in a broad open area where everybody can see everybody and you have the wits of the generals going against one another but oftentimes it can also take place in hilly country You know, battles happen everywhere. And so we have to understand that in, in, you know, in this particular case, success in one place doesn't mean success everywhere. And it's harder to capitalize on because of this. So the nature of the country absolutely affects our victory. The third one is the relative proportions of the three arms. So if we've got a bunch of infantry, what those infantry can do is different than cav is different than artillery. You know, if we're an artillery heavy army, it's gonna take a lot longer to move and get back together and kind of get going in a different direction. And so that effectiveness is different than if we have a cavalry heavy army and we're able to react and get back together very quickly because of the nature of the calf. And so when we're looking at the relative proportions of these three arms, they will affect our victory. And we're gonna kind of go over this too in this next section when we're talking about utilizing our victories. And then secondly, we, we talk about the relative strength of the two armies. Again, last episode, we talked about this ratio, right? This, this ability to um, kind of judge the magnitude of a win or the magnitude of a loss. Well, that's going to affect the victory, right? If we've really won, like really smashed our opponent, well, then moving forward, we can do so with a different kind of confidence and a different sort of approach than we would if we'd only barely beaten our opponent. And they may have retired from the field of battle, but they still did so perfectly capable of coming back to bite us. Well, in this particular case, that's a totally different victory than the other. And so when we're looking at these four effectiveness factors with our victory, which is the tactical forms we've adopted, the nature of the country, the relative proportions of our three arms, and the relative strength of our two armies, we can really calculate what victory means to us. Now, in this particular case... When we're moving on to this next section which r- largely deals with pursuit of a defeated enemy we're not necessarily talking about 40k we're more talking about something well actually you know what it does apply to 40k too so we'll talk about that as well but when we're looking at this we are also looking at the pursuit what do we do once we've won what do we do once we've pushed somebody off an objective or we've like knocked a flank down and made them reposition like what do we do in that moment Well, again, we want to acquire trophies if we can. And those trophies in terms of the real battlefield, again, artillery emplacements, getting some guns. Oh yeah. Getting some sort of arsenal of food or weapons or whatever the case may be. Acquiring trophies in terms of like standards or even high-ranking officers. These are excellent trophies. So while this is you know, less, less of a thing in terms of like actual fighting. That's something that they, you really need to think about in actual war way back in the win. But before the pursuit can begin, we have to understand two opposing facts, right? The first one is the sooner we can get into that pursuit, the sooner we can be hot on our enemy's tail, the more effective that pursuit is going to be because it is going to keep them running any space that we give for them to get back up and get uh, reorganized, that is lessening the impact of our pursuit. And again, this this happens quite a bit, you know, you'll sit there and you'll push a, a flank back or something, and you're looking for the way to move forward, the follow through, right? And so this, this need to act immediately or lose the effect is offset by the need to make sure that you have a force worth going forward with. It doesn't, it doesn't help just to send a bunch of scragglers forward in a loose picket line. Like that is not a very good pursuit. One needs to have an orderly pursuit with a plan and a follow-up with the rest of the army. We're, we, we shouldn't just be sending people willy-nilly without having any continuity to our army. That's a great way to just lose portions of it. So we want to make sure that we're doing so smart. I've seen this in 40k too, where you, where I've won something, where I've, you know, taken the center, I've taken a flank. And the temptation to just run amok is absolutely there, but we need to make sure that we proceed, like proceed with caution, that we proceed most effectively that we can. And so these two things are in conflict with one another and need to be resolved. the The need to move quickly so that we can capitalize on our gains and the need to do so in a smart way to avoid overreach, right? And so these two factors need to be considered. We need to constantly be playing this out in our head, once we've achieved a victory of any sort, because any casualties that are cost that're caused by this overreach can cancel out the victory you know if, if we've taken a flank and then we suddenly lose all um, coherency, all composure, and people thr- like go forward and then they're beaten one by one piecemeal against what left is left to the opponent, well those are all bodies that we've just wasted. That's a, that's a pursuit that was utterly wasted upon an opponent and may have evened out the numbers and dealt a moral blow. When we see a good portion of our, our troops just get massacred, that's a moral blow to the army. It's a similar thing in 40K. It's easy just to like send units ahead, just like riding that momentum. But unless it's backed up by something, we are absolutely putting ourselves in position for a counterattack. Or even just for, for the uh, normal attrition of fighting to be far more effective against us because we don't have that hammer blow coming in. And so that also has to be taken into consideration. Again, pursuing quickly, making sure it's effective, but also making sure that we have the ability to react properly. And this is where those four uh, effectivenesses of of victory kind of come in handy, right? The tactical form adopted as an order of battle. Well, that's going to massively influence how we get our stuff back together. Again, if we've sent half of our army in a large flanking maneuver, well, now we have to figure out how we get that army back together and able to march in a general direction, which is going to take time. Whereas if we do that immediate, like to the, to the very front, we're more condensed at that point. If we're dealing with the nature of the country, it's going to be way easier to overreach there because of that pocketed nature. Because of the fact that everything is so singular, a large success in one area, if we start to pursue our opponent and they move into an area that's still relatively fresh and hasn't been touched because of the nature of the terrain, well, that affects our pursuit. And that overreach is going to be hard hard to make up for. The proportions of the three arms, right? For cavalry heavy, yeah, easy to reform, easy to go after the opponent. Cav for the win. If we're artillery heavy, it takes a little bit longer. Got to make sure that the the baggage trains are moving up. Got to make sure that the artillery pieces themselves are being moved in a logical and effective fashion. These things are all going to influence how quickly we're able to react and what it it means to get that army ready to go and not have those stragglers, not have that overreach. But let's talk about pursuit real quick. There are three different types of pursuit, three different degrees of uh, pursuit at this point. And so the first one, our first degree, is the immediate use of CAV only, while the rest of the army regroups, right? So we have our infantry and our artillery suddenly getting into a position, not suddenly, but being put into a position to move forward. We send our CAV to attack and harass. Now, again, the CAV aren't necessarily looking for an overwhelming victory in the pursuit, but they're making sure that our opponents cannot rest, They're making sure our opponents cannot reform. And I've seen this absolutely in something like Belagarth too, where you have a nice hit where the the opponent force kind of flees or moves off and you have our, our, you know, the strong center and the archers that kind of need to get together and move in the direction, but you send your flankers, right? You send your flankers to make sure that they are distracted and that they can't reform to the same degree. Well, this is our first degree of pursuit. Making sure those flankers or those, that CAV, those speed units, they are able to get out there and get back. That's the big difference. That's the big need, is once they get out there, once they start to hit any sort of serious resistance, they got to come back to the main force, which it should be moving up to support at this point. Our second degree of pursuit is an advanced guard of all arms led by CAV. So if we've got, for instance, if we've got a CAV heavy army, This is what we're looking at here if we're able to collect everything else together and move forward but we've got the calve kind of being the driving force behind that it's a larger group but it is more effective overall right slower but more effective and this is also something that is going directly after our opponents we're waiting for them to try to dig in and we're going to hit them hard or again it's just a matter of harrying them until they are like well out of the the danger zone or whatever. So this is, these are the two different degrees of direct pursuit. So you have the, the mostly cav going out there. And then you have the larger group, the larger army that's pursuing. But we still have a third. We have a third degree of pursuit here, which is our victorious army advances as far as it f- can physically endure. If we have just had a slamming defeat of our opponent. If the relative strength of the two armies is now really really in our favor well at that point we can just advance and again this is easier to do if we're already all together that that vanguard kind of idea the advance guard isn't the whole army when we're doing dealing with that second degree of pursuit the the bigger portion of the army may be regrouping but those who are ready the advance guard is able to go out and do in this for the third degree it's everybody it's the entire army moving forward and trying to to really capture as much as we can in terms of advantage and this is as far as we can physically endure again every army is going to have its need for rest because human weakness is a huge part of anything we do in war or war gaming you know for that matter because ultimately for a pursuit to be successful we have to fight against our desire to end the conflict after our victory because In most cases, especially in real war, you know, once, once the violence is over, it can be hard to want to engage in more. And even in terms of something like Belagarth, we get tired, you know, like our bodies get tired. And so the want to pursue to that degree sometimes isn't there, but it's important. It's very important if we want to capitalize upon our victory to be able to move forward, to continue the carnage, if you will. And not just rest on our laurels and just have our comfy position where while our opponent reforms to be able to come at us again. Now, there are different types of pursuit, right? And these are different than our degrees of pursuit, even though there's still three of them, and they're kind of loosely kind of tied in there. They are different. So we have our degrees of pursuit. Again, you've got that immediate use of cav, the advance guard, or the whole army. Well, our types of pursuit... Are somewhat related to those things as well so the first one is a simple pursuit you know this is this is the one that's kind of done with cav it's harassment it's disruption it's you know making sure that they don't have a moment of rest this is a simple pursuit not necessarily trying to draw the enemy into pitched battle which is what the second one is designed to do that's a hard pursuit right? And we're actively seeking battle. We have our force, and this is either the the second or third degree of pursuits. We've got our advance guard or our victorious army going forward, but the idea is to force our opponent into another battle situation. Try to wait until they have no more running left to do and finish them off, basically. So simple pursuit, again, is there for harassment, is there for, you know, just, just harrying them, making sure that they're not able to get back to full operational effectiveness. And then the hard pursuit, presumably with a larger force of the army, if not the whole army, is trying to hit them entirely. Now, our third type of pursuit is our sneaky type of pursuit. And this one is a parallel march. And the idea of this one is to intercept our opponent at their object of retreat, whether you know, they're heading for a bridge, if they're heading for a beachhead, wherever they're going to try to get away from us, we're trying to get there first. You know, if I know that my opponent is trying to regroup, if I know, for instance, that they've gotten split into two large or 2 medium-sized forces and they're seeking to rejoin, like uh, this one side that I've been fighting has, has kind of withdrawn... I can be pretty darn certain that they're going to rejoin that other group. And so by using a parallel March, by getting there, trying to get there before they do, as long as we've got the numbers to support it, this can disrupt that plan. If we get them before they hit the beachhead, they're not able to get away anymore. And so this parallel March presumes that we know where they're going, right? We may not know. We might be like, aha, they're heading for the Madison bridge but they go after the Russell Bridge instead. Well, a parallel march wasn't for much, was it? It's a calculated gamble at that point. And sometimes it's painfully obvious where they're going, and other times it's not. So the parallel march is a bit of a gamble, but it can really catch our opponent unawares. It can really kind of make them go sideways. And again, hearkening back to our previous episode where we spoke about surrounding and surprise, well, what's more surprising than your enemy waiting for you? (laughs) when when you're trying to get away from it you get to your to your you know where you're wanting to go and there they are just waiting for you to come say hello so these are your three different types of pursuit our simple pursuit our hard pursuit and a parallel march right and these are done in varying degrees of intensity for our pursuit and all of this is affected by the conditions of our victory Again, our tactical form is really going to influence what degree we can pursue at and what kind of t- what, what type we can use. Same thing with the nature of the country. The relative proportion of our three arms, right? And then the relative strength of our two armies. These massively affect what type and to what degree we're going to pursue. But we can only truly be effective in all this if we understand those fundamental truths of war. Destruction of a military force is our leading principle. It's going to get done by whatever means of battle we have we're trying to seek a great and general battle so we can have those great results those results are going to be greatest when we're able to combine a bunch of smaller victories into a larger victory and only in this great battle should the general make sure that they are at the head of everything that they place more confidence in themselves than they do in their subordinates and of course this is just my own addition Got to have that understanding that all war is escalation and that it will, what we think is going to be the threshold will change. We need to be ready for it because we need to caution again against overreach and making sure that we are able to capitalize on our victory and not let it defeat us, not, not let casualties, unknown casualties from our pursuit take away or, or dent entirely our victory because this pursuit also takes its toll on the pursuer, because we're still running, we're still moving forward, we're still, we're still, we're still, you know, abandoning supply lines, or, or having them shift drastically, there is going to be a toll on the pursuer as well, though they're in a position of power, tactical, strategic power, we must also understand that there will be strain there as well. So yeah, let's, let's, uh, Let's kind of stop there for the moment, and we're going to move on to kind of chat about a few of these ideas. You're going to chat with us about the follow-through. Is uh, you'll you'll recognize him, (laughs) longtime friend of the show, and a a fantastic buddy of mine. Thumbs, welcome back, sir.
1: Well, hello again.
0: Also we wanted to make sure that you were aware That we are not in my usual recording space It is Mordor Outside and not sexy Mordor But like toxic waste dump Mordor And um, so
1: I, I, I I Struggle with the smoke even though he's way more Of a badass and can get out there and and for, fight in it for those of you who don't live in the western United States and might not understand the fire season has finally come in yes. so there's it's just smoke it's i I live on
0: a uh, kind of a hilltop in the kind of in a bowl where the city is and there's mountains all around and all that uh looking out the window I'm fairly convinced that my little hilltop is the only thing that exists in the world because that's all I can prove at the moment
1: <laughs> yeah i I mean I live out of town it's already dark at night just in general and it's Creepy dark right now Just because there's There's nothing There's
0: That's crazy So yeah You guys are probably Might hear some Some venting duct stuff You might hear some folks Walking around You might even hear Cassius Because you know He's he's trying He's trying hard too I mean we we keeping him Placated with some pets But uh, Yeah So just Just let you know It might be a little Noisier than usual But uh, So Thumbs You just You actually just got done With
1: fighting today I and, Yeah I finished fighting Like an hour ago which is going to be real good and possibly real bad for this conversation? Because on one hand, like, yeah, this is all really set up in my thoughts, and the other hand, just be- watch true. the power level like <laughs> drop. Get you some caffeine on an IV. Oh yeah, I'm drinking coffee as we go. Like that's. Uh, oh, I, I thought that I was pre-prepped for this.
0: Smart, smart. Well, uh, one of the things that we were talking about, uh, speaking of like going out. And fighting in the smoke, you know, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a risk reward situation where you're taking that risk of fighting out there, but of course, still getting those kills, still being able to do everything is a, is a nice reward. But when Clausewitz is talking about it in this section, he's speaking about it in terms of that general battle that is the most effective way to bring about the destruction of our enemy. But that, that works with both ways, right? Our oh, enemy yeah. is also trying to bring us to this great general battle to work for our destruction. So, in your mind, what are the risks and rewards of this situation? um beyond just we are risking our force while like potentially beating the pants off of our enemy's force like that was pretty obvious let's get that out of the way
1: first yeah it's i mean the the, the biggest thing at the end of, i'm sorry my, it's only my brain just shut off there <laughs> uh the the, the the biggest thing is like well we know we're gonna have the fight and especially because we're in bellegarth like the fight has started we've called León. there's no there's no, let's make peace at the last second. So it's kind of going to be, what is the cost of the battle? How much am I going to lose in the process of having this big fight? And a whole lot of the equation of like, all right, is it worth it to go off and have a couple of people chase that person down? Or do we want them to stay, you know, clumped up together? Sure. Uh
0: I think a lot of it also comes down to the fact of, like, you, you have a lot of choices, too, mm-hmm. in that situation. You know, if everybody's out there, if we have this great and general battle that we're all participating in, well, that gives me better pick of my opponent's um, archers. Maybe their commanders, like if I know who's in charge on the other side, uh, or if I hear the term driving the bus and I see who's driving the bus then I know who's time for <laughs> that person to go <laughs> uh, at practice yeah. to today
1: we did it all on all and there were three people arching which is a lot of people arching for an all on all of like 12 people on the field right, right? but what that meant was all of the archers clumped up together as they like we are the least problem to one another but that backfired on them like that was not a bad tactical decision mm-hmm. but what backfired is everyone noticed that they did that yes and so the other eight people all focused right that direction. So, like, yeah, that was maybe the right choice for them to make, but the rest of us did the math and went, I can't take it. And especially like me, I'm a spearman. Right. I've got that backpack shield, but that only works when I'm facing the wrong direction yeah. with an archer in the situation. <laughs> so, like, uh, there was a definite game of, like, hey, let's take care of them first. Right. And then we'll all go. Or like I was going up against, you know, our our good friend Katetsu was there today and he was legged and I'm spear and Toto's coming up on us. And we went, tactically, it's a better idea for the two of us to work together Mm -hmm. and we'll fight each other afterwards uh, because these are the choices we have and these are the costs we have.
0: Right, right And I mean that cost is something to think about too Because attrition is a part of any general battle mm-hmm. um, And so the, the cost in any general area needs to be mitigated So having people who are on you know, If we, we stack all of our good players on the right That means that the attrition in the center and the left Might be untenable in terms of preserving our entire, um, our entire team Right? Whereas if we have some good players kind of scattered throughout, that gives us the ability to have better coverage, but also dilutes
1: our power at yeah. the same time. If, uh, God, I, I can never go on this podcast without talking about Alexander the Great, but his whole hammer and anvil thing. He yep. just needed one side to hold long enough for his, in his case, cavalry on the usually right flank to roll in and squish him. Right. But you can only do that if you have your, in many cases, your best troops all layered up on that one side. Mm -hmm. While, you know, that might not be as much of a a strategy with the Roman legion that's like, here's our wall. We will not be moving now today. (laughs) Or they still used like a little bit of
0: flanking elements and vanguard elements that were from the auxiliaries or whatever. But oh, no, sure. But their main, I mean, like, main, main main
1: tactic was that turn. The rotation. Romans' big thing was the fact that they learned how to turn, and everyone who used a phalanx went, "Wait, what? How um, do?" You? <laughs> yeah, but like it, it, it's you know the there's the equation of here's what I have, here's what I have to work with. What's the what's the most useful way I can utilize this, or what are like my top three choices? Right. Um, and what do they have to counter, you know, uh, to use stuff, Angus, who doesn't really go out outside of Stygia these days, but, uh, if Angus is on the field, Angus will always deep flank. That's his thing. Yes. He will always deep flank. So we set up one person today be like, he's going to do this. Your first job is to deal with that. If you win, great. Join back up and we'll read, but like, we need to set up for that specific instance. Right, right.
0: Well, that's nice to be able to read your opponent like that, too. It takes away some of the risk, because if one was not accustomed to Angus doing his deep flank, then, I mean, it, one of the things that you know we look at all the time through the military science stuff is if you can get somebody behind your opponent and mm-hmm. cut off their method of retreat... Even if that person doesn't do anything, like, if he gets back there and all he does is make noise, he's already effective.
1: One of the most effective things I did a couple of times today was wandered out, honestly, farther than I should have as a spearman. But it was enough that two or three people had to pay attention to me. And then I could let the other side go play. And they could do stuff and then we could meet. But I pulled, especially, I pulled the archer's attention away by going a, looking like I was going a deep flank, but doing a not, like, but not actually committing. It was more of a deep fake? Yes, pretty much. Oh. Oh. No, it's like, you will pay attention. <laughs> and, you know, if they hadn't paid attention to me, it would have turned into a real deep flank. Sure. Like, it was. Well, you're setting
0: yourself up. You're, you're, uh-huh. you're creating it into a place where you're like, this can either be a grand distraction, or
1: it can be something tactically useful. Yes, and there was a lot of cases of like man if those if those people had pushed on me i would have died sure but they were playing the risk of is it worth separating our two people to go deal with me their two people to go deal with me mm-hmm. uh and risk the other side pushing in on them right. and honestly most of the wins that we got in that set of that team versus this team um happened because we split their attention and they got stuck. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, that, and, and in terms of
0: obviously you were getting victories, mm-hmm. and the military science confirms that. So, all across the board,
1: smart. Uh, deception is and huge. That's what we do in war. Several times when I lost, because I definitely lost my share today, too. Like, I, this was, God, it was really good fights. There was no, like, this side has just won every round. Nice. Um,. Usually was the same thing. My attention got split a couple of different ways. I had trouble committing to the choice. Sure. And I paid the price for it. Also, the archers have learned that I'm the easy target because I'm a spearman. But, like, that's... um... The other... A risk of having that, that little bit of
0: reach. And, of course, there's the... There's the, I, I feel like there's a, um, like a rock, paper, scissors thing that goes into the, the three arms as well, but it kind of gets reversed every now and then, depending well,
1: on... and that's how I learned to use it. Right. To use the fact of, like I mentioned before, I was grabbing the archer's attention away, mm-hmm. and I learned that was a case by the number of times the archer paid attention to me. Right. And shot me right in the chest. Yep,
0: yep, yep. No, and and that affects, the, with, with those even sides, mm-hmm. that obviously affects what you can do with any of your given smaller victories. Because if you have one side, if, if like, for, for instance, your side of the field is just monumentally better, and when you've finished crushing a particular flank, you still have massive monetary like uh, numeric superiority and ability superiority, obviously the effectiveness of that victory and what you can do with it is way different than what you were talking about and being like, these sides are fairly even. Every breakthrough also comes with this risk factor of exposing yourself to a team that is just as good as yours. How were you able to still keep effectiveness in your victory? How were you able to to make sure that you were having the right tactical forms um, and, and having that strength, making sure that that strength proportion contributed as well? So how effective could you make the victories on this field, I guess, first off?
1: I mean, part of it is just... And this is its own unique thing, partially because of Bellagarth, partially because of Stygia, and partially because of how insular Stygia is, which we've talked about before. Right. But I'm sure a lot of realms have experienced this more than they might have before since, I don't want to say post-COVID, but like you know, since we've started coming back. Right. Because big events haven't been happening as much, you've been a lot more interacting with just your realm. Right. right. I mean, part of it is just straight up, I know my people in a lot of cases there might be a little bit of like hey you go over there but for the most part it's just trusting my people to know what they're doing and watching as they counteract like i don't have to ever tell toto i mean not that anyone has to listen to me i am i am an authority figure but only because i've been here forever right like uh but you know i don't have to tell toto what to do because toto's gonna go yeah okay I already knew to do that or like (laughs) you know maybe like oh man this person's kicking my butt can you help me out oh of course bud but like so a a large part of it is you know trusting my people to know what they are doing trusting my people to be trained trusting you know uh, uh, Risto and Mac are our two newest fighters generally here they get a little more attention from us but that's just, you know, they're learning. And they're both of them are growing at an astounding rate. They're both sure. just incredible. But uh, being like, oh, you two, stick together, focus on that. Well, I know sometimes we will put our heads
0: together beforehand, mm-hmm. too, and just be like, okay, so um, do you want to run something a little bit like this? Me and, mm-hmm. me and uh, this guy will go this way, and you guys want to go this way? And we'll be like, okay, cool. So we, we have, like, a general idea of what's going on. But, like you said, it's way easier to be done amongst people who are of a similar... Uh, experience level because then we kind of know what's happening we know what we
1: mean by things like shallow flank deep flank Um... well I mean just okay to use a more modern war after World War II or at the end of World War II the American army was one of the best armies in the world and not just because we had a lot of cool stuff but because many of our people had been fighting together for years at that point. Right. The and not just on the like one on one of like you and I in the I was gonna say trenches, but that's World War One. But yeah. you you and I next to each other in the wherever. Uh but also the commanders knowing how to work with each other and knowing what their people are capable of. And then we went into Korea and we were like, we're the best military in the world. And our people were not trained the same way. We didn't have that we're as good as we are at the end of World War Two as we are at the at the beginning of Korea, we were no longer as good as we were at the end of World War II because we didn't have those years of experience together. And there's a lot of reasons Korea was a quagmire, but part of that is that we ran in expecting to like. So you're so you're saying that you agree with
0: Klauswitz when he says that uh, a break from war and a focus on the humanities
1: on on that sort of thing weakened. Yes, yeah, we both know that I don't agree with Klauswitz <laughs> that liberal arts is a bad thing, but. Knowing the people that you work with, and it doesn't even have to be on the field of battle. You and I hanging out, talking about this. Sure, You coming over to my house and me fixing up your armor. Right. Me coming over here and us playing video games, or whatever. That level of connection together, the more I know the person who's next to me, Mm -hmm. the more capable we will be because we know each other's strengths and weaknesses on and off the field it's not exactly the same thing but it's similar enough what i'm hearing you say
0: is that you i correct me if i'm wrong but it's almost like you're saying that Klauswitz missed one that there should be a fifth in this if like the effectiveness of a victory and that's saying um how long have people been working together How long has the army been together? How long have have these patterns been recognized? Because I would think that that absolutely
1: would be something that needed to be added there. I mean, it's definitely a factor. Like there is totally people that I've never met before that Mm -hmm. I step on the field and like, it's simpatico. We just click. Right, right. But it helps. I would, you know, as great as that theoretical person is, I will fight next to you a hundred times compared to uh, random, any random person, because I know what you're going to do. I know how you think. We don't have to talk about it anymore. No. We might have very limited, oh, Wug, who's one of our good archers on the field, is messing us up because neither one of us used big shields for the most part. Mm-hmm. We should pay attention to him. But that's just like minuscule communication. I know how you're going to fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, to use that, a similar example, okay, so we had War of the Gate a week ago, it was our last event, for the very first time, all of my squires and I were able to go out on the field at the same time. Mm-hmm. We have never fought together before. Some of them, like, I, I fight with Anya, and I fought with Theon, but we've never, like, the four of us are a team, here's what we're going to do. But because we know each other so well, we talk every day. Mm-hmm. There is a group chat that is just for everything. I know these three better than I know most of my family. Mm. Or as well. We automatically knew how to work together. Even though we had never been on the field together before, we knew each other well enough off the field that it was really easy to be like, okay, you know, Theon's our shield man. He's going to be placed right here. Anya is really good at this around stuff. And we held the line every single fight. Mm -hmm. With zero previous experience. And it felt like I'd been fighting with them for years. I was watching this, by the way, uh, dear listeners. And
0: hopefully... um, And again, take this with a grain of salt, because you know how I am with videos. The idea is, um, I got some video of War of the Gate, some kind of top-down stuff. And I want to do some like play-by-plays and kind of show you all what was happening there. Because it did perfectly demonstrate some of the principles we're talking about right here. And one of the things that you all use to your advantage... Was that obstacle? Mm-hmm. Like there was, uh, it, it was a narrow field because of the way that it had been constructed, and s- towards the middle of it, there was an obstacle that divided the lines, and so you were able to a- achieve great success on this one
1: small area of the field consistently. Mm-hmm. The The field was split, but it wasn't a quite even split. One side was more open, this side was a little more closed. And I had watched a little bit of this fight, and they'd been committing roughly even forces before the four of us stepped on to each side. But I went, oh, the four of us can hold the spot. We don't need to advance. We just need to hold the line here, and then we could lopside the other side, the other group, and went, all right, the four of us got here, the other ten of you take that side and push through. Right. They won't get through on our part. Right, right. Or, I mean, they did once or twice, but, like, out of ten fights, they got, they passed through, like, ran us over maybe three times. That Those are numbers I will take any day of the week. Sure. Like...
0: No, y'all y'all had an impressive stand there. Um, and, but but uh, like what Klaus was saying, it did kind of limit the effectiveness of that victory, because... Most of the time it was only a smaller portion of their team and a smaller portion of your team Mm -hmm. battling it out for that section, whereas the the larger portion was happening uh, in the more spread out area. Mm -hmm. And so the successes that happened over there were extremely impactful because you had larger numbers that were going. And so, I mean, there was one time that I remember watching uh, Hakan broke through just like, just on the the smallest part of the other flank, but just yep. enough get get through. And I just walked him, watched him walk down the back, just boop 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 boop, boop like everybody who was back there, and the effectiveness. Like and so once that once that roll came around, like the people who were against your side had no chance. Oh yeah, no chance whatsoever because numerically that success was just just so much more impactful.
1: Well, there's that great video of uh, Lacudis at Wolfpack Opener where he managed to just clip through this right spot and you can just watch him with his flail. <laughs> just, He's just like rolling his wrist and like, dead person, dead person, dead person, dead person. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you can just watch that entire line be like, oh no. Like, you, it, it doesn't take a whole lot of change in a battle for suddenly it to be a completely different scenario than it was before.
0: And if some of that happened too. Like if, if that smaller portion where you guys were occupying, if there was a breakthrough, mm-hmm. oftentimes they'd go for the flank as well. But because of the location, there was usually more warning. Oh, yeah. People would be like, oh, something happened over there. We need to turn the flank in order to a- accommodate the fact that we got people coming over. Whereas when something would happen on that other side, again, it was just so fast. Mm-hmm. that hmm um, That really, that really um, changed the effectiveness uh, of the victory, depending on
1: where you are on the field. Well, and I do want to say, because uh, I'd never met this guy before this event, this guy Shenron. I don't know if you met him there. I'm not sure if I did. Uh he got behind us a couple of times and completely changed it. That guy is, that guy knows was, how to use. A was he the
0: fellow who was uh,
1: more bare chested? The long Never hair? wore a shirt. I don't think yep. I saw a shirt in three days long uh, hair on the guy. Yes. Yep. I know who it was. Yep, he yep. definitely, you were, he was the one that was really quickly like, I need to keep an eye on him. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but weird. I mean, in that same way that the, the, the four of us and then later three of us held that spot, they noticed of like, Oh man, if we just leave them against the people who keep running up against them, they're going to lose. Wug, right. who knows how to fight me and knows how I think, targeted me sure. at that point. I Once Wug noticed what we were doing, I died every battle for like six battles in a row. Always from Wug. Always in like the same spot too. So man, yeah. he's getting real good with <laughs> that bow. But, yeah, He's, uh... he's
0: got a great consistency with it, no doubt. Well, and, and one of the things that we have to deal with in something like Bellagarth is that it's not just the one battle. Mm-hmm. We do go over and over again. So if it had just been the one, the effectiveness of what you were doing would have been more because it was less expected. Now, after, as the battle went on and they were like, okay, or as the battles went on yeah. and they were like, okay, this is a threat zone, they were able to kind of modify their plan. But
1: if it was just the one battle, it would have been way more effective. Oh, um, we would have rolled. That first one, we did roll. Yeah. Um, And we were able to watch. It was actually really interesting because we basically went up against the same people again and again and again. Right. Because they kind of ended up doing the same thing. I was able to watch them try and tweak their battle strategy Mm -hmm. to come at us, being like, well, that didn't work. Let's try to rush up to that spot first. Sure. And then... I think they were hoping, like, we can rush up and we can claim that, but that was fine. We didn't need to own the bridge. We just needed them to not fully cross the bridge. Right. right. Like, it's fine if I'm fighting you in the middle of the bridge or at the end, as long as you're not getting onto my side. Right. And even
0: in real war, there would be learning, right? Mm -hmm. There would still be learning your opponent, but it wouldn't be in the exact same scenario, which is what we were doing here. You know, where it was like, okay, I'm observing my opponent, I see what they're doing, I'm going to start making plans for this exact scenario, rather than being, okay, we're going to be in a new environment, but I kind of know what they're going to go for because they've done it before,
1: so you can kind of start to make a plan instead on there. Well, and that's one of the interesting things with Belagarth of, one, we're going to get back up and do it again, two, I probably like the person on the other side of the field, as opposed to, I want to stab them, (laughs) like, real stab them, uh... And three, you just get the chance to, like, fix mistakes. You get a chance to try new things uh, in completely different ways that you would never be able to do. Oh, and four, you're probably starting with relatively even numbers. True. Like... And trying to balance the skill on both sides. Yeah, most, you know, most medieval battle techniques was like, if you really want victory, you want a quarter to a third more people than the other side has. Oh, yeah. Half is preferable, but, like, you need at least a quarter. Yeah. While we're going, oh, they're really out, especially for pickup battles. Mm -hmm. Like, at War of the Gate, we. I mean, it's different if you're doing units or whatever, but we were just scrapping the whole weekend. Oh, and it was great. But uh, we're going, oh, man, this side's really outnumbered. Send two people over there so we make sure it's the best, most even fight possible. Right. Yes, I know, Cassius. You're, You're mad about life.
0: You're doing very good, buddy. No, I, and, and yeah, you, all good points Excellent points Though I do want to touch on something that you said um, Just uh, there, there before that kind of sparked my memory On something else Clausewitz said So changing the topic ever so slightly You had talked about the difference between Wanting to win against friends mm-hmm. And wanting to actually stab the person on the other side And this brings uh, up the point that Clausewitz was talking about uh, This idea of war in earnest you know, actually being there and wanting to to vent that hostility, and I mean, he even uses the word to vent hostility and animosity. We don't have that. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. I mean, if you do, <laughs> then you probably
1: need to 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 work on your. I will you know, usually like if I have real hostility against someone, I'll probably take myself off the field. Sure. Just yeah. I need to like I'm not safe at that point because right. at the end of the day, we're not doing real war.
0: Correct. But in terms of even the play war that we do. You as a person, you're a gentle person. You're, I have you're, never been in a fist fight in my life, which is weird to me. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, you're you're big. You're the same size as mm-hmm. I am, but you and weren't. I
1: weigh significantly more than you do. Like I am not. there's like oh, I'm bigger. Just but like you know, you're, it's you are. You I are. am a large man.
0: Yes, <laughs> and and it's. I've never seen you raise your voice in anger at somebody. I've never seen you bow up on somebody. The
1: very idea makes me a little physically uncomfortable. If we're being honest here,
0: but you're still able to rearrange somebody's lumbar region <laughs> if necessary, and not just and not just another person like myself. I mean, if you were if you were going hard and fighting your best against people like me, people your same size, mm-hmm. you know that's that's one thing. But if you're going against people who are smaller than you, who are younger than you, or who are um, physically weaker than you. You don't shy away from killing them just as hard as you would kill me. What is it that lets you do that? What is it that allows you to have that dichotomy of self? Whereas off the field, you are the picture of gen, gen, like a gentle man in like the in the truest sense of the word. Thank you, first of all.
1: Um, <laughs> but an absolute warrior on the field. Part of it is years of practice sure I mean the hardest thing everyone's got that one thing when you first start playing Bellagarth or whatever f- foam fighting thing you're doing that is the hard thing to do. Some people are scared of being hit some people are uh, want to do those like straight down kendo shots or like trying to learn the wrong thing For me the hardest thing to learn was uh, aggression was throwing shots sure. I doubted myself so hard, and part of it that I got around it is I learned for a while, I have really good defense, mm-hmm. considering it was 20 years ago and all the tech was old, even by the... You know, it was a completely different field than what we have today. True. But uh, part of it was just learning how to engage in the field and then learning how to... Okay, I've learned to block, now I need to learn to throw a shot. Right. And it took a long time. The other thing that helped with it was learning... I don't quite want to say ego death because I still care if I win. Right. Ego death, but like not trying to learn to not take it personally if I lose. Mm -hmm. And part of this and part of the reason I'm able to do it is because the person on the other side is my friend. Mm. You are my friend. I want you to do well. For you to do well, I need to give you my best. Yep. So you have earned that win. I agree. Uh, and it, it is the same if it's you or if it's a meldeer who is like 90 pounds soaking wet. Yeah. <laughs> I am going to change how I hit them right. versus you. Right. Uh, you know, like we'll have new people come in and be like, you're not taking it easy on me, are you? And I'm like, I absolutely am. Like well, you've... in terms of like, but we, we
0: calibrate our shots, mm-hmm.
1: like we're still trying to win, but like, uh, you know, Klaus was talking about, economy of force. And I might not, you know, especially in the one-on-one, I might not take the easy win shot there to give them some chances, but they still have to earn that win. Sure. Uh, and so part of it is respect, and part of it is, and it's one thing I have actively worked on since we've come back from COVID, mm-hmm. is cultivating a sense of joy at other people doing well. Yeah. For example, and I've noticed that other people have started doing this, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to claim, like, Stygia compliments other fighters, because I started doing it, but <laughs> since I put an active effort into doing it more, I've noticed more people. Today, Mac, who I've already mentioned, popped up without asking, like without being asked, and started being an arrow blocker for me with his shield. Turns out, he's really good at it, nice. also, which was just wonderful to learn. I love it when people find out new skills. But, and it wasn't just me going, hey, good job with that block. That was a good block, Mac. Right. But Wug, who clearly thought he had this shot, and he had a beautiful shot, and Mac came out of just nowhere and blocked it. Like, neither one of us knew he was there. I thought I was dead. And Wug's like, Mac, that was amazing. Yeah. So having that, like, being... Being happy that the other person is doing good and giving them the chance to prove how good they are has helped me face them in the way that they deserve.
0: Well, make sure you're not on tilt,
1: either. Uh-huh. Because you're already looking
0: for ways to make the situation positive. And like you said, not taking it personal. Mm-hmm. Like, if somebody gets a really
1: good shot, it's not like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, just suddenly getting no. angry, but it's like... Oh. well, and I used to do that. I used, and I mean, I'm not perfect. I still get frustrated sometimes. I'm like... God darn it. Like, I just can't win. Ah! I mean, for all of and us, I this was the first sport we went into. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to learn a lot of stuff like that. Oh, uh, And just growing up. Yeah. like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't, you know, I mean, I had a point earlier today where I had to have a moment of like, you're okay, sit down, breathe. They're just fighting really good. That's not, it's not even that you're fighting really bad. You just had a couple of rounds where the, the dice and the skill rolled against you. Right. Take a breath, go again. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, but as I mean, and if they're doing good, I have to do good to compete for myself and for them. Right. And honestly, the more I think of Bell as community, because commu- I mean, I love Bellegarth for a thousand reasons, ranging from making stuff to fighting to just you know the feel of landing a really good spear stab. Right. I mean, any stab, but the spears, spears, my baby. We've discussed mm. this. But the reason I stay is the community. Hmm. So, thinking about that, thinking about the community, even when on the field, has in some ways made me a better fighter. Sure. Which is an interesting way of looking at it, but like, you know, I need to make sure Turk... I need to make sure that Turk has the best fight against him possible. That I'm doing the best. But I also need to make sure that melon who's on my side has the best person supporting him possible and some of this might come from the fact that i am primarily a support fighter as a spearman like there were a couple of times today that i stood in the middle just all out and come face me but i have a spear i should not have been there and if they had (laughs) if they had taken that bluff i would have died but like even just doing that was giving other people a chance to do stuff sure so, for me, I care. The thing I kind of care about most in life is caring about other people mm-hmm. and finding a way to translate that caring about other people onto the field and caring about other people on both sides of the field sure. is a way that, for, and I don't know why that worked. It might not work for other people, but is a way that made it easier for me to be better. It's a, it's a great.
0: A strategy because again it's not like we're actually opposing armies especially mm-hmm. when we're dealing with the realm like the the sides are going to change up the uh you know the personalities are going to rotate and so it's not like we actually have clean lines drawn in stygia about these things it's not like going to a national field and one of the things that klauswitz has stressed and i'm sure the listeners are tired of hearing us talk about it but Clausewitz well, morale... is about eight thousand pages long so. right <laughs> but morale Morale is a huge thing. Morale influences more when it comes to battle, more when it comes to war than just about anything else. And so, what we're talking about this this trend toward positivity, this trend toward making sure that everybody is uh, is in a good mood, everybody is uh, walking away with feel goods rather than feel bads. Well, that only makes the entire realm better. Oh yeah. All of us perform better, which makes all of us practice better,
1: which makes all of us. You know, it it just kind of just snowballs in a good way. Well, it makes me feel better, even if I don't. You know, I was having some trouble before the event. I had, like, three practices in a row where I was useless with my spear. Yeah. Partly just for whatever reason, it wasn't clicking. Sure. And partly because other people were like, God take care of him. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, like, I was still able to do okay because I was able to be interesting enough that, like, I was like, man, Turk had a really good day today. Or, like, and, like, I helped him get there on my side or not on my side. Sure. And, you know, like, and even just... Hey, man, that was a really good shot. Just, it does so much, especially with new people. Oh, yeah. When you watch them land a pretty shot and you hear, like, four fets, you're like, yeah, you can just watch the person. They, like, glow. Well, it reinforces like, it,
0: too. Uh-huh. It's like, okay, not only did you do a good shot there, but, you know, sometimes we'll learn something and we don't know we've done it right because we don't get that reinforcement from the people around us. But, like, what you're saying, if somebody does something right and everybody's like, that's exactly it, well, that person's going to get better a lot faster mm-hmm. because they're starting to learn what to do way quicker through that positive
1: reinforcement. And one of the things that I have spent the most time doing, since, especially since we came back from COVID, and part of it, I think, is just ways that I have grown up. Mm-hmm. Like, just I am, you know, more adult than I was three years mm-hmm. ago, which one would hope. Yeah, <laughs> is uh, and also just how you know a giant worldwide traumatic event has changed me you know, is yeah. I want to be more actively positive. I appreciate the people around me more, and I need to make sure that they know that mm-hmm. on and off the field. Sure, sure.
0: No, I dig that. Yeah. I think a lot of us took. Well, we took away what we wanted to take away from the mm-hmm. from the plague, and that's a good thing. A good takeaway there, better than
1: becoming bitter. <laughs> and letting it corrupt your soul if i'm not kind i don't feel good at the end of the day and i want to feel good at the end of the day so it's not so... entirely
0: altruistic because it's all about giving you the feel goods too
1: not all but like it's you know if other people feel good that makes me feel good and if that's helps both of us great i see no problem <laughs> like, there. yeah i see not... no problem
0: even if it's not truly altruistic it ends with good all around so it's a good Uh But now we're starting to go toward philosophy. Yeah, no, that's (laughs) so. Before we end here, I wanted to make sure that we touched on this fourth one because I think it's really important. uh, This idea of pursuit, Uh, this idea of following up on these victories, on making it count. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had talked about the the different degrees of pursuit, and of course that that trade off of we want to move as quickly as possible to capitalize on our gains. However. We want to do so with support and with the ability to not do overreach. Because, it, you know, Klaus has stressed several times that you can lose the advantage you gained through overreach. Oh, yeah. If we lose it's a bunch really of, easy to... Yeah. We lose a bunch of casualties to overreach. Then it's like, okay, well, you know, it's, it, it kind of cancels it out. If we send, you know, if we crush a flank... But then we go one on one, like we do, we do, like the uh, the kung fu old kung fu movie. See, I was thinking with... I always
1: think of Assassin's Creed, but it's the same concept. Oh, yeah, yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. like, um, it's my turn now. Right, like, like again, yeah, <laughs> I always think
0: of those old Jet Li movies where the dudes basically line up in a line, or
1: the Ip Man movies mm-hmm. where the ones are kind of lining up against him. And this person like... comes up, kick him in the head, go down. Yeah. yeah, I would infinitely rather face one person than five people. Outstanding. Yes, I I agree. Well, and I was thinking about this because on some level the The idea of like keeping as many people alive doesn't as possible doesn't really matter in Belgarth because in a few minutes everyone's gonna get back up and go again. Right. But there are ways that it does. Like okay, so for example, Stygia almost exclusively this season has been playing stand and deliver or ditch, whatever you know the local terminology is. The uh, the the losing team picks from the dead of the winning team. Right. And that's how the game balances out and you get your people. Now, theoretically, it doesn't matter as long as your team wins. So As long as you have one person alive and you still win. But if you have all of your people work together, your team's gelling really well. They have less people to take away from it. Sure. So, man, you know, like... Okay, we lose one person. Me. You. Whoever. I have a much better idea of what the battle's going to be as opposed to we lose everyone but you. Right. They have such a, they have, they have so many new tactics. They have so many new choices they can take. Sure. So there is a, a real thing, even in our thing, about keeping as many people as alive as possible. Sure. And it is a hard thing in some cases to learn after you have crushed that side. Right. You know, uh, me, Mac, and Risto are ran down this side. Mac, who is real into this game and still young enough that his knees work better than mine do, Mm. is going to bolt to try to take on the next person because he wants to have that fight, he wants to be the anime hero, and he wants to, you (laughs) know, be useful. Right. But if he runs off against Turk, Toto, you, whoever, especially at his skill level and is growing fast, they still have the advantage. Right. They have the advantage of history, of experience, of twenty plus years. Twenty plus (laughs) years versus—he's technically got three, but he joined two weeks before we shut down for COVID, which is oh god, I get sad every time I think about that. I know, right? Um, But but if I keep him with me, then Toto's got to fight an up-and-coming shieldman and a spearman with a rough idea of what he's doing. Sure, the chances of us winning that fight infinitely better. Mm-hmm. And if Toto or Turk or you can pick off person, if he can get a kill on Mac or even just leg Mac and then book it over to where I am because I can't keep up with Mac, one, because I'm old and I worked before practice, so I'm tired Like when I get there, um, he's got a much better chance of victory. Sure.
0: Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And so, like you were saying, keeping together... Making sure that you're advancing with this force is important. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of different ways, of course, to capitalize on this pursuit. So let's say that you and Mac, you're able to consolidate, you're able to move forward. Um, well, you said Mac is pretty pretty quick. Yeah. You know, we've got people like Shy, we've got people like TF or um, you know Talon out, out
1: east. Mm-hmm. We're very quick people and we're able to, to calve it up pretty well. And it may be worth it to not all stick together, but to send... Talent off to go deal with something but if you can and if you have the people to do it send someone with talent, so you can have those two on one numbers that we were talking about earlier. Well it's about harrying too
0: mm-hmm. is, is that the idea so if we're sending just our quick people out we're not necessarily expecting them to
1: completely destroy the other army unless they get the opportunity like if they get, get back city they get back city. We're kind flying. of hoping that they will place the people so the rest of us slow people can catch up. Yep fix
0: them uh, if you will
1: and so you know I, I always find that that is is really works if
0: you've got experienced calf, you know mm-hmm. quote unquote calf, that immediate use of them is okay but like the second degree is more common uh, from what i've seen which is where you get this advance guard you get the the whole flank which is there they've pushed forward they've been able to cons- like to to make a, a concerted effort in this one area whether it's the left or the right or the uh, center and then you've got this chunk of people who are able then to capitalize so f- from my perspective this is the one that seems to happen the most which is where you have this advance guard of all arms, and it's led by the calf. where you have your quick people who are running around from that flank, while you are fixing the person, you know, mm-hmm. right in front of you. Um, would you agree?
1: I think that? so, yeah. yeah. Um, the only time that doesn't tend to go that way, if you end up with, like, the numerical advantage or whatever, right. is if you have enough... Wounded people, legged people specifically, sure. that it's more worth your time to just like turtle up and make them come to you. Right. But I mean, even that's similar, it's just different of you're placing them a this is my place as opposed to you will stay here.
0: Right. It's a, it's a different tactic. Yeah. For sure. That capitalizes on because if we got this relative strength of the two armies. If you've got half the people there who are legged mm-hmm. and you walk away from them, well we've just we've just increased. What's the point? You've halved the army and yeah. Right, right. And so we've completely taken away from
1: the the um what victory the the price of that victory achieved. hmm Well, and there's also a thing to keep in mind of not just running forward to engage the enemy, but separating too far mm-hmm. from your group to be able to help them. That's a completely different kind uh not to put someone on blast here, but someone I was talking about uh, talking to recently. And I'm like, man, you always end up the last person alive on your team. And then you're like up against six people. Right. And they're growing quick in skill, partially because they keep having to fight six people on their own. <laughs> sure. And I was actually complimenting them, being like, man, you're doing real good. You keep surviving lately. And they came up to talk to me afterwards. And I'm like, oh my God, when you said that, I realized that I keep abandoning my team and then keep having to fight these people alone, which, if I hadn't abandoned my team, the numbers would have been much more even. Right. So it's not just like, I'm going to run up and fight them, but like, oh God, they're coming for me. And they bolt, and it tends to be young, quick people who do that. Right. I do not bolt. I am not a bolter. <laughs> <laughs> um, you are infantry. Soundly infantry. Here. <laughs> um, I keep thinking of your your boss of Vallas, of the like, I'm too old to run. Right. Uh And it's a different thing because it's someone running away as opposed to running into the fight, but you still end up with the same equation at the end of the day. Sure. Sure.
0: But yeah, and it's always that balance. It's always that balance thing. And and of course, the preferable thing is to be able to have the victorious army, your whole army, march forward. Oh, yeah. If we've we've broken up the left flank, the right flank, and the center, and we're just playing mop-up, that's this last degree of pursuit, which is just, okay... The whole
1: army is here. We're all engaged and we're all able to to kind of take what we can. It's the weird thing with Belgarth because you don't want one team to win every time because that's just not fun after a while. But when you do have a pretty good fight and you turn around and you realize you didn't lose a single person for whatever reason, you feel like a god. Yes. <laughs> like, so that feeling of like, man, we did real well. There's still like six of us alive and it was a good fight and they put up a good show. Right. Best feeling in the world. And we're looking for that. That's
0: that's where the, I mean, again, we're looking for a good fight, but we're also looking for a clean a clean slate too. Mm-hmm. I always enjoy a clean wipe too. Um But we've got these types of pursuits too, right? And so they kind of they kind of feed into these d- degrees, as far as I can tell. And so the simple pursuit is what we were talking about with, like, sending out a few experienced Cav, people who know how to not get too far away as to be useless to the rest of the team, and also not to engage too heavily as to take away from the numbers of the team. Um, and in that simple pursuit, I think we're looking at, like, the degree of of either one or two. That immediate use of Cav only or the advanced guard is kind of involved in that simple pursuit, I would think. Um... The hard pursuit would be one of the other two, like two or three is the idea of you're actively seeking battle, right? We're actively seeking to, to fix our opponent again and hammer them immediately. Um, and this is typically the one that I see and what mm-hmm. we do is like if we collapse a flank, we're looking for a quick, hard pursuit to make sure that they don't really have a time to reinforce the other flank, right? And we can just crush down the line
1: well and part of that comes from the fact that our battles are so quick and we know we're going to get up and do it again because it does get boring to watch two sides turtle up and slowly move (laughs) and interact and it might be super exciting when you're inside those two teams but everyone else is like for the love of god (laughs) i dig
0: that um so yeah, this is this is obviously to our advantage as well, and we're mm-hmm. not actually losing people to death or to sepsis or anything along those lines. And so we're something's to, going
1: really wrong if someone in your realm gets sepsis. Like this. yes,
0: <laughs> yes, it is. Got to reconsider some some life choices at that point. <laughs> um, and then, of course, there's the parallel march, which is the interception of uh, at, at the object of retreat. And so sometimes we know that we you know, we have a fixed point, like a objective or a flag or something along those lines that they're looking for. Or the other part of their team. Mm-hmm. You know, if we've crushed the center, and you've got the left flank and the right flank, well, they're probably going to want to join up at some point. And so we know, then, that that is going to be the direction that they're going.
1: Yeah. There's, there was a bit today of uh, uh, Mellon was on the other side of the field because our two teams had split up, and we were doing fine. We had split up on purpose, mm-hmm. but it came to the point that our two sides were Small enough that it was time to just consolidate into one. Right. And I just openly shouted across to a melon, like across the field, "Melon, if you can, come back to us." Right. Partly he can run, I cannot. <laughs> as we have covered ad nauseum today, <clears throat> uh, and so it was just going to work better for him to come back our way. But some people still chased Melon. Other people just went. He's going over there, and they just started walking our direction, so we'd all be ready for the thing. You right. know. I won't chase someone that I know I can't outrun. But well, if I, you
0: know where they're going, that makes life a lot I easier. am a...
1: Uh, what is it? The the humans are uh, pursuit predators. Uh, the, yeah. the, I can't outrun the antelope, but when it's exhausted, I'm still going. I will walk it into the ground. But if I know where that antelope is going, that this... Analogy's getting away from me with that very basic thing, but like if I know, you know, I know where the, the bear's cave is or freaking whatever, I'm gonna just go to the cave. Sure, it's gonna come back there eventually. Right, right. No, I dig that work smarter, mm-hmm. not harder. Not harder. Main thing, the boss taught both of us.
0: Indeed. Um, so yeah, we we kind of talked about these these truths, of course, and you know the effectiveness of victory. I liked your addition with the morale issue like that being
1: another huge thing that influences the the effect of that victory i work so hard on morale that's kind of become like my passion project right right um
0: and then of course the different types of pursuit and how we you know capitalize on that victory so uh but thumbs i've absolutely loved having you on it's always a treat i always love it um and uh y'all at home um maybe check the youtube channel i'm gonna try to figure out (laughs) we'll see what we can do there um, but I'm going to have an interview with Anya Wug and Thumbs at some point in the future for the um, for running an event, for talking about kind of the issues and and um, and proclivities that arise when doing an event. So that's going to go in the old archive for when we do another one of our inevitable marches and or camp episodes. But uh, it seems to come up in every book at some point. It's almost as though it's important. Really. But, sir, uh, thank you again for coming on. Anytime. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you all next time. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the Art of Wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the EarVerm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at EarVerm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off.